Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. The definition of tone policing, according to dictionary.com, is a conversational tactic that dismisses the ideas being communicated when they are perceived to be delivered in an angry, frustrated, sad, fearful, or otherwise emotionally charged manner. But it is much more than that because it can also be manipulative a power move, an anti-debate tactic to detract from the truth of a statement by attacking the tone in which it was presented rather than the message itself. Or it can just be playing the emotional woman stereotype card when you're losing an argument to shift the attention and focus of the debate. So this is really a two-part problem. First, it's the gaslighting when you're not actually being emotional. You know, the calm down or you're being defensive when actually you're not. They're just losing the argument to your logic and they're playing the last card they have. Tone policing is their Hail Mary pass in the argument. Other times though, it's about power. It's about dominating by ensuring that they are controlling the parameters of the interaction, even the tone and level of importance placed on the topic. It's shifting the parameters to move the focus of the discussion in a direction that benefits them. Let's consider an example. Mike backs quickly out of your driveway without looking and runs over your cat. You obviously care deeply for your cat and you are not happy with Mike. So you bring the point up to Mike. But instead of apologizing or even responding to the topic at hand, your loss because of Mike's carelessness, Mike makes the conversation about how you are expressing yourself. Why are you so angry? Why are you coming at me so angry? Well, Mike, I guess I am, quote unquote, so angry because you ran over my cat. And the more Mike dodges the dead cat and attacks your tone, the more frustrated and angrier you get. After all, he ran over your cat. And yet by the end of the conversation, he's acting like you should be the one apologizing. And so the important issue is ignored, the issue you brought up, while you are left not being heard or acknowledged. That is tone policing. Now, that's a bit of an extreme example, but I'm sure you can all think of times when you've been appropriately angry or frustrated and express that anger, frustration, or disappointment only to have your argument derailed and the power dynamic totally shifted. And this is all playing on the stereotypes and biases about women, the bias that women are too emotional. It's meant to alter our behavior in ways that often leave us not winning when we should be winning, not getting the acknowledgement of our very reasonable, often correct point across. And it isn't always, but often can be, a calculated attack on women, another tactic to derail women's success, advancement, competence, and confidence, a maneuver to silence our voice and maintain the status quo power dynamic. It might even be that Mike doesn't realize he's tone policing because he's so put off by a woman expressing frustration or calling him out on something that he's done wrong that he can't even address the dead cat. But it is important that we acknowledge this, call it out, and interrupt the behavior. Women for too long have tried to workshop identified problems out of their behaviors and even character in response to what is actually just a more manipulative form, a more modern-day manifestation of old-fashioned gender bias, 
Tone policing is an oppression tactic that systemically keeps women and the issues we raise silenced. Tone, voice, even the octave of our voice is under attack in an effort to continue to place the emphasis on fixing women versus doing the hard work of fixing the organizational and structural inequities and biases that are the real problem, the actual explanation for women's lack of advancement. And lately, I have noticed that the most common questions I get when coaching and training talented, ambitious, executive, go-getter women are related to vocal fry and upspeak. I was asked to do a presentation just this month for a group of women executives. And at the end of the presentation, I invited attendees to ask questions. And the topics of tone policing, upspeak, and vocal fry were the most asked about. So I knew it was time to address this on the Advancing Women podcast. And for those of you for whom these are new terms, let me define them. According to speech pathologists, vocal fry is the lowest vocal register produced, resulting in a popping or creaking sound. So for example, in speech, it might sound like this. Today is Tuesday, and we're talking about vocal fry. You hear that slowing down at the end, using less air, deepening your voice. You start to hear the individual pulses of your vocal folds coming together, lower in pitch until it creaks. So it's not Tuesday, but Tuesday. It's not today, but today. Now, upspeak or uptalk is the habitual use of rising pitch at the end of a sentence or thought, going up with your pitch using a rising tone. Linguistics call this high rising terminal as in the end of the sentence. And it can sound a bit like you're ending a statement with a question. It's an upward pitch at the end of a declarative statement. So you might say with a downward inflection at the end, I really like those shoes you're wearing. With upspeak, it would sound more like this. I really like those shoes you're wearing a bit more like a question or perhaps that there's more to add. So these linguistic behaviors come with a lot of criticism and with social media, a lot of very public criticism. And I totally get that this can be a language peeve or that people may find it annoying, but we also need to acknowledge the myths and the biases and stereotypes around it. People complain that upspeak and vocal fry make you sound less intelligent, less competent, less confident, and less trustworthy, less like a leader. And more and more women, but not men, are being called out on it and being advised to fix it. And this is despite plentiful evidence that shows that men and women both engage in vocal fry and upspeak. Eric Singer, a dialect coach, illustrates this in a short YouTube video, and I'll include that link in the notes, where he recites the first sentence of the Gettysburg Address with vocal fry, then has a female colleague do the same, and then challenges us to be honest about how it lands, how it is interpreted. Research suggests that it is the female vocal fry or upspeak that is noticed, criticized, and attributed to negative perceptions of women but not men's competence and confidence. It is the justification of an inequitable bias against women. In a recent 2022 medical journal article titled Women as Deficit, Reevaluating Interventions to Establish Gender Equity, the authors note that, quote, in the 21st century, women as deficit thinking perpetuates the perception that the differences between men and women are not simply differences, but rather deficiencies. From there, it begets the harmful assumption that women lack appropriate skills and that female skills are inherently less valuable than male skills, end quote. So that is an important part of the discussion, the acknowledgement that when something, even a speech pattern, is viewed as feminine, it is almost immediately then interpreted as a deficit to be fixed. 
And that women as deficit bias is insidious, and it nullifies the legitimate description of women as simply different from men, implying that female automatically equates to inadequacy or less than. It impacts what we see as ideal in the workplace and in leadership, where male behavior has been traditionally seen as the gold standard. So that's part of the problem. But here's the other part, and it's the real kicker. Research shows that women aren't the only ones who use vocal fryer upspeak. In one recent study of 18 to 22-year-olds, researchers at Centenary College of Louisiana found that young men not only vocal fry, but they do so more than young women. Our data showed that men spend about 25% of their time speaking using fry, while women use it about 10% of the time, said Dr. Jessica Alexander, an assistant professor of psychology at the college. So it's not that men don't do it. We just don't care if they do. It just lands differently. It is noticed, received, and judged very differently when a woman does it versus a man. And this is gendered casuistry, applying a standard to women strictly that is applied leniently or not at all to men. Indeed, being so unaffected, so unbothered that it isn't even noticed, but then noticing it in women and using it as an excuse to subordinate women and then blaming women in terms of the negative perceptions of their competence, confidence, intelligence, and ability to lead. When you seek proof that one group is less than, it's not surprising that you find it. It speaks to women having to prove it again, prove their competence, prove their leadership ability, and that we actually belong in those top roles of power, pay, and prestige. Research shows that men's mistakes are more likely than women's to go unnoticed, to be more quickly forgotten, and are more likely to be attributed to outside variables like poor market conditions versus lack of competence. With women, the exact opposite is true. And here again, with vocal fry and upspeak, we see that both men and women do this. It's just a problem when women do it. It's a limiter when women do it. When women use upspeak or vocal fry, it is noticed and criticized. And this is part of confirmation bias. We expect women to be less of a fit for top leadership, so we see or confirm the deficits. We focus on deficits for women and strengths for men. And of course, if you're only looking for deficit in women, you're going to find it. If you're not looking for it in men, you probably won't. In an article by Rachel Thompson titled, Stop Telling Women How They Should Talk, Thompson argues that what really needs to change isn't women's voices, but how we think about women and their voices. Thompson reflects on an argument with a male colleague who objected to the central thesis of her argument, but rather than choosing to engage with the salient points she was making, instead opted to attack her on an intensely personal level, the way she spoke. And Thompson is not alone. Women are criticized every day for the way they speak. And since terms like upspeak and vocal fry first entered the popular lexicon, it's only gotten worse. As Thompson astutely notes, these buzzwords, which once described non-gender specific speech patterns, have become yet another weapon used to silence women who dare to voice opinions. Likewise, Jessica Bennett, gender editor at the New York Times and author of Feminist Fight Club notes, they, meaning these words, are, quote, easy ways to tell women to shut up, end quote. It's like once we had the words to define the perceived problem, critics just couldn't stop using these words to belittle and undermine women, to blame women, even though these behaviors are just as prevalent, if not more so, in men. 
And don't just take my word for it or the research. If you Google vocal fry, you'll likely get women like Kim Kardashian. But if you take the extra step to Google male vocal fry examples, dozens and dozens of examples will be available to you. You can hear it for yourself. So what do we do then? Well, as I often advise, we must acknowledge the reality of the bias we are dealing with. It's about eyes wide open. If we as women buy into this and believe it and see it as a character flaw, as something less than in women, then they have already won. It is crucial to remember the mantra that guides the Advancing Women podcast. It's not your fault, but it is your problem. One woman I spoke with was prepared to pay over $7,000 for a linguistic coach because this criticism was presented to her as a limiter, when the real limiter was the think leader, think male bias that persists in her organization. And I'm certainly not opposed to fixing a skill set deficit or honing our tool set, but most importantly, we have to have the right mindset. You are not broken. You do not need to be fixed. You are not defective. And even if you try, you will likely end up right where you started, but with less money in your pocket and less time to do the things that will truly move the needle for your advancement. And I'm not saying you should ignore the issue if it is brought to your attention, but you want to be realistic about identifying the real problem, which is almost certainly gender bias, because too often we spend time and money trying to fix a stated flaw only to see another problem or flaw brought to our attention as soon as we fix the last one. It can be a constant hamster wheel of fix the women that will never fix the problem because you can't workshop or professional develop your way through gender bias. Too often, our attempts lead to a double bind. As research has shown with other advice to women and as Catalyst, an organization that has researched gender inequity for more than six decades asserts, there is a double bind leadership dilemma for women. Damned if you do, doomed if you don't. Too soft, too tough, never just right. Similarly, author Jessica Bennett notes, women face a double bind when it comes to their voices. Bennett explains this results because our natural style of speech, which tends to be more flexible, higher pitched, is not the style of speech that is typically associated with leadership. And because of this, women may employ tactics like vocal fry to try to make their voices sound deeper and more like those traditionally associated with leadership more male. So in effect, in combating one gender stereotype by trying to deepen our voices, we may arrive at a vocal fry register. As Bennett says, in a nutshell, you're damned if you do sound like a woman, and well, you're damned if you don't. In all of this, when ironically, scientific studies have shown people generally find women's voices more pleasing than men's. Indeed, there are an overwhelming number of studies that suggest humans prefer the sound of a female voice. And some even theorize our preferences for female voices begins when we are fetuses, as these sounds would soothe and calm us in the womb. So what the heck is going on here? I'll tell you what it is. It's gender bias. It's gender bias, the sneaky, more manipulative version that exists today. So we must see it for what it is with eyes wide open. Tone policing, vocal fry, and upspeak, these are more attacks on women and a continued effort to maintain the existing power structure. It's a Jedi mind trick to gaslight women into thinking they're defective when often the exact opposite is true, which is why it's happening. One thing we absolutely cannot let happen is to begin to believe this is true. It is not. As women continue to make strides, there will no doubt continue to be subtle, yet no less damaging attempts to continue to position men as more fit as leaders, more competent and confident, more right for positions of power, pay, and prestige. We need to see this attempt for what it is. 
Scrutiny of women's speaking patterns is just the latest frontier in an endless barrage of judgment and undermining faced by women. As criticisms mount, we must acknowledge and call out how the workforce keeps adding ridiculous standards for women and finding new ways to suggest deficit, new ways to breathe life into the fix the women narrative. Societally, we are so quick to accept nonsensical ideology and ask and expect women to change, to jump right to the fix the woman, fix the problem answer. And we need to keep calling that out and interrupting it. We have to shift the conversation from what women can do to what a workforce can do, what a society can do, what organizations must do to create a more fair and equitable workplace. As authors note in a web article titled Keep an Eye on Vocal Fry, it's all about power, status, and gender, and I'll include a link to that in the notes as well, we must ask ourselves who is doing the criticizing. As the authors note, quote, I'm yet to hear young women criticize themselves for using it. In fact, it seems they don't notice or comment that they are using it. Vocal Fry may be the new voice for upwardly mobile young American women. So who has the problem? Clearly not the young, empowered women in question. It's hard not to conclude that all this commentary about vocal fry is not actually about the voice, but about power and status and who is allowed to have it, end quote. Exactly. Spot on. And so my manifest statement this episode is two quotes. First, George Orwell said, quote, we know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it's an end, end quote. So as women seek equity, especially in positions of power, pay, and prestige, we can be sure we will encounter resistance. And often this resistance, these criticisms, will be positioned as constructive feedback or professional development opportunities. But it's really about keeping women out by any means, by maintaining the existing power structure. And so my second quote is a reminder for when these encounters emerge from the great Ruth Bader Ginsburg, quote, women belong in all places where decisions are being made, end quote. And all the gendered inequitable judgment of our character traits and even our voices and our tone won't change that fact if we continue to believe, to know that we belong. For more resources, you can visit my website www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback, so please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.